Support for Switched on Pop comes from Stereophonic, Broadway's must-experience-new play. If you only see one thing on Broadway this year, make sure it's Stereophonic, written by David Ajme, directed by Daniel Aachen, and featuring original music by Arcade Fire's Will Butler. The play follows a 1970s rock band on the verge of breaking down, breaking up, or breaking through. The New York Times, The New Yorker, and New York Magazine call it best of the year and peter marks of the washington post says okay i'll go there stereophonic is the best play of the year get your tickets at stereophonicplay.com slash fox welcome to switch Dump pop i'm songwriter charlie harding and i'm musicologist nate sloan to start off today, I want to take you back in time. Mm. I want you to think about most awkward aged Nate. Okay. I think we're going back to like 12, 13. Yeah. I mean, talk, let's start with physical awkwardness. You know, limbs too long for my body. <laughs> Just looking like a, a foal being born. Adam's apple, you know, the the size of a literal apple. <laughs> and socially, you know, equally at sea, un- unable to relate to people, didn't watch television, didn't listen to, you know, pop music. <laughs> yeah, I would say I was extremely awkward. Do you remember at that time of life, if there was a song where you're like, this song really gets me. This is me. I mean, weirdly, the first song that pops into my head is... Charlena by Frank Zappa. Probably the fact that I was listening to Frank Zappa at 13 was like a big part of my social <laughs> issues. But, you know, hearing this now makes me think of like being at a bar mitzvah at the reception and the edge of the dance floor, like trying to work up the nerve to ask someone to dance. Mm, hate that feeling. Yeah, that's what that brings up for me. Yeah. There's no shortage of pop music in this world that tries to deal with this challenging period Mm. of adolescence. But I think there's few who do it really well. And one of my favorites is Lucy Dacus. She's known for her critically acclaimed album Historian, which Vulture called one long tone poem about the burden of transience. You don't deserve what you She's also received a lot of praise for her collaboration with Julian Baker and Phoebe Bridgers in their supergroup Boy Genius. Mm. Her third album is coming out, and it's this contemplative coming-of-age record with songs about childhood from ages 7 to 17. It's called Home Video. I really love it. I want to play you the opening single, Hot and Heavy. I mean, just listening to an excerpt of that I feel that kind of vulnerability of youth, just 
not not even like getting into any of the actual content of the lyrics, but just like kind of the amount of them and just how it, <laughs> it just unspools at almost this like kind of stream of conscious mm. memory. It reminds me of the way that teenagers talk, which is ju- which is just like unguarded and just mm. like they're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I dug that. Even the way in which she places the words hot and heavy in the basement of your parents' place. Right. It's a little delayed, isn't it? Or it's like trying to cram in more information (laughs) than the rhyme scheme allows. It does. And yet it has this rhythm to it that sort of has the awkwardness, if you will, of those early romantic encounters. And I love the way that she deploys metaphor. I think she has one of my favorite insults that I've ever seen in a song. It just kind of breezes by. What's that? You used to be so sweet. Now you're a firecracker on a crowded street. Mm-hmm. It's like a firecracker on a crowded street. That just kind of like, I went by that. And I was like, oh, that means you're kind of like loud and obnoxious and bothering everyone. And like, maybe you're kind of a problem. Yeah, that is some shade. <laughs> so I'm going to speak with Lucy in a minute. But first, I want to situate the conversation and what it means to make a coming of age record in the world of popular music. Cool. Yeah. So in researching this question of how popular music deals with coming of age, like you could go more than a million ways Mm. because so much of pop music is literally about this period of life. But as I was thinking about it, I noticed sort of this cheap narrative device that a lot of songwriters use. What's that? It's specifically naming the age that you are in the song almost as a way of pandering to like, do you remember what it was like when you were... X years old. Oh, interesting. Is this a thing? Oh, it's a big thing. Okay. So like the songs in Lucy's record home video, I thought we could look at ages 7 to 17 okay. very briefly. Okay, I'm so game. The first one that comes to mind is obviously age 7. Recently, we've had the breakout smash, Seven Years by Lucas Graham. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Actually opens up with what sounds like a home projector playing back home videos. Whoa. I mean, you know. Yeah, like a reel-to-reel kind of. Yeah. Once I was seven years old, my mama told me, go make yourself some friends or you'll be lonely. Once I was seven years old. Plus maybe like a music box. Yep. I actually think Graham uses this idea fairly effectively. The... Age seven is just a place to ground the song so that he can time travel into the future and compare what it's like to go through all these different decades of Lovey's song. Right, yeah. The next song that I actually really enjoyed, I had never heard before that does this, is have you ever heard Kendrick Lamar's song, Beyonce? No. Let's fast forward to age 12. I remember you were 16 on the TV screen with Wyclef. Were you my type? Oh, God, yes. I was impressed. You was like, no, no, no. I was like 12 years old. Hoping that one day I can chaperone while you're on the road. <laughs> this is a no longer publicly released track when huh. it was earlier. Okay. Yeah. I like this one here as well, where you know, we're using maybe some age difference to establish 16 years old, 12 years old. Yeah. It's fun to listen to this. I've never heard it before. And it like really fun. does. If we're talking about, you know, capturing the feeling of being a kid, like that does it for me because yeah. again, it's just like stream of consciousness. Like this is everything I was feeling. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm yeah. not going to censor myself. It just, it puts you in that mindset. 
one of the ways that these age references get used is as a way of indexing, hey, this music is safe for this age group. And so that does mean that we have to listen to Ludacris's verse on Justin Bieber's baby. You say that as if it's a bad thing. I say it as if it's not meant for us. When I was 13, I had my first love. There was nobody that compared to my baby and nobody came between us so could ever come above. She had me going crazy. Oh, Basically, oh, this is man. saying yeah. safe to play at middle school dance. Right. I don't know, man. I just cannot get enough of Ludus' flow. It does great. Even though that is completely <laughs> innocent, everything he's saying, it still sounds dirty to me. <laughs> just because that's like Luda, man. All right. From here on out, the age references get a bit more on the nose. Are we moving chronal? Are we going to hit like 14, 15, 16? We're going to skip 14. I'm sure there's references. Yeah. But we're going to go right into 15. Okay. That's 15 by the bard of adolescence, <laughs> Taylor Swift. It's Taylor's version, and song takes us back, uses 15 as a way of bringing us into freshman year. Mm. Freshman year. And what happens after 15, of course, we turn Sweet 16. Of course, Hillary Duff's Sweet 16, a of song course. engineered to be played at every 16th birthday party. And I think a song like this, as well as Babies, definitely targeted two people in that age group and often their parents as something which is okay to play around your parents. Yeah. It's got, it's got a little bit of an edge to it, though, with those distorted guitars, processed vocals. I'm into it. All right. So this brings us to 17. And when I was researching this piece, I found that there was another person who had asked this question before, mm. had done a sort of non-scientific assessment of songs that reference age, had compiled about 200 songs and made a chart of what age is most referenced in popular music. Okay, hit me. Can you describe what you're seeing? Okay, on the x-axis, we have age, and on the y-axis, we have number of songs that reference that age. It looks like there's a little, like, peak around maybe 12 or something, but then there's a, a giant peak. The highest point of this graph comes right at 17. Yes. And then it rolls off into your 20s, and basically once you're 27, pop music thinks you're dead. <laughs> but I like there's like there's a little peak down, way down to the right when I'm 64. Right, right. <laughs> <The> Beatles. <laughs> Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? Okay, pop music is obsessed with age 17. There are many references. One that I think sort of establishes this idea of like teenage dream, teenager dumb at 17 is ABBA's Dancing Queen. Mm. For me, this paints this sort of Katy Perry idea of teenage dream, the thing you want to last forever. You're in the prime time of your life. There's this whole world of songs like this. And I have a playlist of just like dozens of songs with 17, not just in the lyric, but like in the title. Like 17 is sort of 
the end of innocence. Yeah. And then 18 is, yeah. Yeah, of course, right. I mean, that goes back to like Sound of Music, right? I am 16 going on 17. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I am 16 going on 17. I know that I'm naive. So we've got Avril Lavigne. Yeah, you tell me how to break the rules. 17. Kings of Leon. Oh, she's only 17. Lake Street Drive. I wish I'd met you when I was 17. There's a great one by Sharon Van Etten. I used to be free. I used to be 17. All 17, by the way. Hmm. Alessia Cara. I couldn't wait till I could be 17. I thought it was Of course, an extremely famous one, Edge of 17 by CV Next. Right, right. favorites of the of the bunch though is an older one janice ian's at 17 i learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens in high school girls with clear skin smiles wow i mean i've heard this but not in a while and I don't know if this is just because you've primed me, but this <laughs> makes me think of Lucy Dacus. Unlike some of the other tracks we listen to, this has that vulnerability, that kind of sharing your innermost emotions, the the fragility and drama of being 17, like comes across in this Janice Ian song yeah. in a way that reminds me of the Lucy Dacus track we listened to at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you made that connection because it also brings me back to what you were sharing at the very beginning of our conversation. Mm. And being an adolescent is <laughs> brutal. awkward. It's challenging. It's a place where we go through some of the most profound change at the fastest amount of time. Each mm. of those ages do deserve a song because 15 yeah. feels really different than 16 and feels different than 17. I promise you that 31 does not feel different than 34. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things I like about how Lucy approaches this in her music, though, is that she doesn't do the let's name exactly how old we are to be like, oh, yeah, I've been that age before. Instead, she does this thing where she takes us to the scene of the crime. Hmm. She'll take us into the details, into some unforgettable teenage moment. Being back here makes me hot in the face. Hot blood in my pulsing veins. Heavy memories weighing on my brain. Hot and heavy in the basement of your parents' place. You used Lucy pulls us into a specific memory. Back home, these memories keep coming back. They're hot and heavy, weighing on her brain. Right. She's in the gray areas, the complicated moments of adolescence. And I'm really excited to share this record with you all through my conversation with Lucy right after the break. Support for Switched On Pop comes from Stereophonic, Broadway's must-experience new play. If you're anything like us, you're obsessed with music. 
not just listening to it, but everything behind the scenes as well. What makes a good band? What makes a great song? And what does it take to make it big? All of these questions and more are explored in the remarkable new Broadway play, Stereophonic. The New York Times, The New Yorker, and New York Magazine call it best of the year, and Peter Marks of The Washington Post says, okay, I'll go there. Stereophonic is the best play of the year. Written by David Ajme, directed by Daniel Aachen, and featuring original music by Arcade Fire's Will Butler, the story follows an up-and-coming 1970s rock band as they gather in a California music studio to record a brand new album, but it's a bumpy ride that threatens to tear the band apart. You may find yourself being reminded of the famous recording processes for legendary bands like Led Zeppelin, Bruce Springsteen, and the E Street Band, and Fleetwood Mac. So get your tickets now and see Stereophonic live on Broadway this spring. Visit StereophonicPlay.com slash Vox for more info. I want to start by asking you about your motivations for this new record, Home Video. I always feel like a klutz when people ask, like, what's your inspiration or how'd you begin? Because, like, I just tend to write songs and it doesn't really feel like a choice. And then once I notice a bunch within a theme, I start to think maybe there's an album there. And I'll just make a track list to realize if there's actually sort of like a through line and then record. But I guess what motivated it subconsciously was, like, feeling really weird in my hometown after starting to tour a lot. And trying to like circle back to old memories to see if I could like find out who I am at the core, like if there is anything that has never changed about me or yeah, just kind of like rethinking some memories that I have perspective on now. You jump right into the record with the song Hot and Heavy and it takes us immediately into an adolescent past. Couldn't look away even if I wanted Try to walk away but I come back to the start How does leading off with Hot and Heavy set the scene for the rest of the record? Well, like the first lines are like, being back here makes me hot in the face. And so it's sort of saying like, where we're about to go is maybe a little embarrassing or like, I don't feel settled about it. And it's just sort of about that feeling of like basically being triggered (laughs) by like going somewhere and be like, oh my God, who did I used to be? I don't know her. I think it's appropriate that we're feeling unsettled because we're going to look back on some of the more uncomfortable parts of growing up throughout the rest of the record. And even though you're looking to your past, musically, things sound very contemporary. You're not choosing to reference earlier eras and genre tropes here. Yes, that was so intentional. And I kept trying to explain this to everyone that worked with me on it, and it really put gutter guards on a lot of the sounds that we eventually got, because I'd be like, man, that sounds so cool, but it's kind of 70s or it's kind of 80s. We have to rework it, because I did want it to be evocative of nostalgia and warmth and like the past, but I didn't want any particular decade to be invoked. So even like certain synths that we got, I'd be like, 280s, and they'd be like, yeah, synths are our 80s, like they just are. And I'm like, no, we can get a synth sound that has very little personality. And like for thumbs, basically, we had all these synth sounds and I was like, nah, they're all too much. Like the point of this is we need to like basically not have instrumentation. So we meet him at a bar. You were holding my hand hard. He ordered rum and Like, if I could do it a cappella, I would. We just need, like, the minimum amount of things. 
Why did you want to avoid those more backward-looking references? I feel like I hear a lot of music that is kind of derivative or redundant, or like music lovers want to make music that they love to listen to, which I understand as like an exercise. But like, I don't know. I, I don't tend to like look to other artists for inspiration. I think I care more about songs and like doing whatever a song needs. Even like, I think sometimes I try to make sure that there's not a specific genre going on. I just think it's like, I don't want my fans to expect one thing from me because that doesn't sound fun in the future. A good example of not being limited to a particular sound, I feel like is the song Partner in Crime. When I Could you break down Partner in Crime? What's the song doing? What's going on? Yeah, so the song is about a relationship I had when I was in high school with someone who was much older than me. And um, just about how like I got into that situation willingly. I just felt like I was ready to relate to people on a more adult level, or I just like wasn't really finding anyone in my immediate surroundings that like I could talk to in the way that I really wanted to. And so I was kind of like hush hush about my age getting into that, which is embarrassing now. And like, I know that that relationship at this point was like an abuse of power. Does the auto-tune provide some remove to make it feel safe to challenge the other person in the song about that power difference? I think so. Like, it it makes it feel like, oh, this is overtly fake. And so it's like, you can kind of not have to follow the rules, which is maybe how I felt at the time, too. Like, I don't really need to follow any rules if, you know if I'm lying. (laughs) So yeah, it's also about like making yourself seem more attractive to somebody, even if it's not the real you, which is what autotune does also. Beyond the autotune, there's a lot of other ways I feel like you're not so-called following the rules. You've got a rock kit playing a sort of hip hop beat. You were my partner. Sort of even Nashville style guitars. pad that runs the commonality between lots of other tracks. You're not sticking to just one space. I'm glad you're picking that out. That's what I really like about that song. And I like that it comes right after the song Going, Going, Gone. Sweaty palms, averted eyes Wasn't sure if he and I were going out Which is like a single take. Like all of us in one room So it's like the least processed song we've ever done and then the most processed song we've ever done. That contrast is kind of like fun and silly to me. One fun other thing about Partner in Crime is that the guitar solo, like I kind of wrote it, but I hate playing guitar. Like my hands hurt when I play guitar too long. So I just get Jacob, our guitarist, to play it. who, by the way, listens to this podcast. 
shout out Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> but he was like, not getting exactly what I wanted. He was like, why don't you just come over here and play the fretboard and I'll play the strings. And so we didn't really communicate. And I just like with my pointer fingers slid around on the strings and he just did whatever, like picking them. It's kind of like four handed piano with two people, except for on the guitar. Yeah. We just laid it on top of our laps. There's some challenging topics like we've talked about power inequalities between families, relationships, lovers, how does writing about adolescence from a distance give you insight into who you were then? I feel like it's a process of exerting control over things that I didn't have control over at the time. Like once you're out of crisis mode, you can either choose to never look back or turn around and see it for what it was. So I think like a lot of childhood is crisis mode. <laughs> and maybe if it's not crisis mode, it's like, autopilot like you just have to do what other people say and you get pushed around by the world and by the rules that are set for you so it was kind of yeah a process of just realizing like I am the narrator of my own life so I get to say what this meant what it means what it will mean I get to put words to it now yeah it it felt really like embodying or something do you have an example of a song where you might be saying something today which you feel comfortable saying, but didn't have the words for at the time? Cartwheels, probably. That song is kind of about a few different things, but mostly about like my friend and friends who got into boys before I did and were just like trying to sexualize themselves really early. And I was like, why are we doing this? Like, this is so dumb. Like, what? This isn't fun at all. Um, let's just keep having the regular type of fun that we have. When my best friend like told me that she had sex for the first time, I felt so angry and sad because it felt like the end of something. And it kind of was like the end of our friendship. Like we were maybe like partners in a way. And then it was not that way after that. At the time, like I believed in God and I was just like, God said not to do that. <laughs> um, and at this point, I can say that it was just sort of like a different type of personal betrayal. Like I was probably more hurt personally than on behalf of God. Yeah, you have this song VBS about going to Bible camp. And the lyrics are quite uninhibited. There's some really fun moments, almost antithetical to the purpose of being at Bible camp. There's references to heavy metal music. And there's this one lyric about a friend snorting nutmeg, trying to reach a higher power. Back in the cabin, snorting nutmeg in your bunk bed. You were waiting for a revelation. I can imagine, it seems like when you were young, these moments were unsettling, but today there's quite a bit of amusement. Yeah, the the circumstance actually was that I met my first boyfriend at that Bible camp and he smoked weed. And I was like, we're going to date, you can't smoke weed anymore. Because I was, I mean, lame and <laughs> like a child, I don't know, like uh, afraid of breaking the law. 
And he said, okay, okay, I won't smoke weed, but can I still snort nutmeg? And I was like, give me time to think about it. And I I took like a couple days to like weigh out, well, it's not illegal to snort nutmeg. Like I looked up like, is this really bad for you? Like if we were going to hang out, would you be acting really weird? Would I be in danger? Like, are you going to get so high on nutmeg that like my life is in danger around you? I don't know. No one talked to me about these things. Like no one talked to me about drugs. They were intentionally made very scary so that I would stay away from them. And it kind of worked for a really long time. You write about adolescence as a series of crisis moments, ones that we often don't recognize until after they've happened. And perhaps that's because of the way in which the sort of Disney narratives about what adolescence is supposed to be is so far from the truth. Is this project trying to right some of those tensions of things you were grappling with as a young person? Yeah, I think so. I I feel like that tension is a good word. Somebody was using the word like trauma and I was like, I don't know if this album is about trauma as much as, yeah, just like highly nuanced experiences. That You mentioned Disney Channel. I think about that a lot because that was so much of my learning was through Disney Channel. And like one of the scariest things about shows like that is that characters are archetypes and so they don't have nuance. And so you're taught that if you're a certain type of person, that is who you are. You're something very small and you like you have your little niche and you have your few. Like if you put yourself into the shoes of any character on one of those shows you have a very small purpose and like there's no room for nuance. So I feel like that's one of your lyrical gifts is to take a story and put a magnifying glass on it into some very personal palpable details in such a personal project. What do you hope that listeners will take from it? I have a really hard time like hoping (laughs) for anything specific because I don't like the feeling of disappointment. And so I try not to hope for things that much. Um, But I do hope that people like just interact with the storytelling, like pay attention to the words and like come up with something in their heads. You know, like I think it'd be really cool if this could be like a visually evocative record. Like if the scene was set enough that someone can live in the world of the record, like a book, like that would be incredible. Um, And then on a personal level, I hope people understand that like nobody has to share these parts of their lives. And so it is kind of like a gift. Is there anything else from the record that you want to highlight before we go? Oh, one funny production thing, the solo and VBS, Colin, one of our, producers whispered into Jacob's ear, play like you're divorced. And I thought that was a really good production move. (laughs) How does it sound to play like you're divorced? Just listen to the uh, baritone guitar that is on VBS. And that is, that's what being divorced sounds like. Thanks, Lucy, for sharing your new album home video with us. Yeah, thanks for listening and like taking some time with it. Switched on Pop is produced by Nate Sloan, Megan Lubin, and me, Charlie Harding. We're edited by Julie Myers, engineered by Brandon McFarland, illustrations by Iris Gottlieb, social media by Abby Barr. Our executive producers are Hannah Rosen and Ashok Karwa. Remember the Vox Media Podcast Network and a production of Vulture. 
This episode was made possible by JBL, who are hooking us up with the gear we need to go on the road this summer to visit our families. Very thankful. We'll post extra material about Lucy Dacus. She just had a great profile in Vulture. We'll put all of it in our show notes. You can find those anywhere you get your podcast, as well as switchedonpop.com. We're on social media at switchedonpop. And we'll be back next week, continuing our summer series with a new segment we're calling Modern Classics. We're going to be speaking with Sam Sanders, host of It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders at NPR, one of my absolute favorite people in audio, about the artist Labyrinth. It's going to be a really fun conversation. Till then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. Support for Switched on Pop comes from Stereophonic, Broadway's must-experience new play. If you only see one thing on Broadway this year, make sure it's Stereophonic, written by David Adjmi, directed by Daniel Aachen, and featuring original music by Arcade Fire's Will Butler. The play follows a 1970s rock band on the verge of breaking down breaking up or breaking through the new york times the new yorker and new york magazine call it best of the year and peter marks of the washington post says okay i'll go there stereophonic is the best play of the year get your tickets at stereophonicplay.com slash fox